Well, two times. Um, when something happens two times, there's got to be some meaning to it. And uh, in one month, two times, something happened to me that I want to communicate to you because it caught me off guard and it's never happened to me before. Uh, about a month ago, uh, my wife called in an order to a place called Cracker Barrel. A lot of things happen to me in Cracker Barrel. I want you to know that. And uh, she called this order in and I guess she paid for it ahead of time. And uh, quite a phenomenal thing. Normally I pay for it when I arrive, but I went to the register and the lady said, um, well, can I help you? I said, yes, I'm here to pick up a meal. And she said, well, what's the name? And I said, Michael Cook. And she says, I'm sorry, we don't have any order with that name on it. And I said, well, that's impossible. My wife just called again a few moments ago. She said, could it possibly be under another name? I said, well, absolutely. How about Becky Cook? And she said, oh, yes. And then she asked, never happened before. And she just asked the question, hey, um, do you have some ID? <laughs> and I guess in her mind, uh, my valid Texas driver's license, I said, uh, yes, I do have some ID. And she says, you don't really look like a Becky to me. And it's already, it's, this order's prepaid. No, I mean, people just can't come in here and pick up people's food that's prepaid. Okay. We can call her. She said, no, I'll just look at your ID. And I said, see, my name is the same as my wife's last name, Cook, Michael Cook. That's who I told you. And uh, anyway, she was looking at my driver's license and she looked at me a couple times and she said, well, this is not you. <laughs> this happened to me a month ago, right out here on I-20 at Cracker Barrel. And I said, oh, no, no, no. Here, let, let, let me see that. I said, I, I took my license back. I said, no, that's me. I, I said, that, that is me. I, ha I handed it back to her and she looked at it again. She says, well, this doesn't look like you. Well, I got the food, so that was a good thing. Uh, but uh, coming home last weekend from New Mexico, I just finished the funeral. I had 11 minutes to spare. That would have put Pastor Kevin in the Iwi-Jibis. You know, I kind of live on the edge. He gets to the airport four hours early before anything happens. I mean, security's not even working when Pastor Kevin rolls in. You know what I'm saying? It's that early. But I mean, I, I'm cutting it close. Car, drop off, bus, you know, praying that there's not a long line in security out there to Sunport. And uh, in, in, in a way, uh, crazy, uh, crazy thing uh, happened to me there as well. I got to security. I handed my license this past weekend. And the guy says, pull your mask down. I pulled it down. My eyes were big. <laughs> Through the glass. He looks at it. He runs this thing under some kind of light, flips it over, looks at it, looks at it again. He says, I don't believe this is you. <laughs> now, you tell me what you do at the airport. I've got at that point 16 minutes until we board the plane. And he has my valid Texas driver's license. He says, this is not you. Oh yeah, it's me. So I reach in my pocket, I pull out some credit cards. I say, 
would it surprise you to see that I have every card in here has Michael Cook on it. I even pull out my business card. I'm a pastor. That doesn't work. <laughs> he calls a guy that's at the next stand over and that guy comes over and he looks, he, the guy turns his flashlight on, man. He's looking at it. It's got the little Texas emblem and it's not so much is the license valid. It's is, is this me? That's the question. So as I'm talking to the guy there, I just make the comment, you know, I guess the reason this really maybe doesn't look like me or as much like me, I mean, here I am, I'm standing here. This, this is what I really look like. I, I guess that picture was taken when I was much, much older than I am now. <laughs> and that guy didn't think that was funny either. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, luckily I, I, I made the plane and it was exciting. I, I, I just wonder if that's ever happened to you. You, either to you personally or you go into a home. I mean, I've had this happen. You go into a home and you know, you're waiting to meet somebody maybe for the first time and you walk into their home and somebody has you, hey, hey we'll be, so-and-so be with you in just a second. And you're looking and there's these big family pictures and here's this beautiful lady on the wall. You know what I'm saying? And so you're kind of, your expectations are high. And anyway, in a few minutes, she comes into the room. I mean, she's in the flesh now right there in front of you. And it's kind of like, I mean, you're thinking in your mind, you're looking at the picture, you're looking at her and you're thinking, man, it's amazing what they can do airbrushing these pictures, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and I, I'm, I'm just asking you today if, if anything like that's ever happened to you, because that's happened to me two times in about 31 days. And today I, I share that with you because I'm just heart to heart a little concerned about something. Today over, if you'll find your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we have a picture of what the church and the Christian life, those two entities are supposed to look like. The real thing. And I'm just wondering today, I'm not just talking about Oakland Heights Baptist Church. I'm talking about Christians in general and church life in general. I mean, when you and I read the book of Acts, it becomes very apparent to me, I mean, very clear, very apparent what the church is to look like, how it's to function, what a believer's victorious life is supposed to look like. We have a portrait of it. And just tossing it out to you today, if someone looks at Oakland Heights Baptist Church or any of our New Testament churches, and, 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 and it's kind of like they're looking at the idea of what we're saying we're called. You say you're Michael Cook and you're saying this is a picture of you, but I'm looking at you right now and you don't look like this person on this ID. And this morning, I just... As God has just led me in here and tucked me in tight, 2 Corinthians 2, I want you and I to think for a few moments about this portrait, this picture. And I just wonder if we really are who we say we are. I mean, the New Testament tells us who we're supposed to be and, and gives us clear guidelines. In fact, our Bible does, doesn't it? I mean, you don't have to be a theologian today to think about these moments in the Bible when the Bible describes us a certain way 
And I'll just toss it out to you and ask you, is that the way we look? I mean, does that match up? Is that our portrait? Romans 8 would be a great starting pump point, wouldn't it? Paul deals with these incredible moments. He said, there's, there's no depth, there's no height. I mean, there's no famine. I mean, there's nothing that can keep us away from the incredible love of God. And then all of a sudden, out of that, he says, and in all of these things, you are more than conquerors. For all those that love him, you're more than conquerors. By the way, the only time that Greek New Testament's word used in the whole New Testament, supra, and even Dr. Farrell has trouble translating that. I mean, it's almost an intranslatable word. It's super, it's super conquerors. You have been so anointed and so gestated in transformation of Christ that you supersede the world in terms of your ability to overcome everything that the world has to throw out at you, a victorious concept. But man, that's not the church that I see the idea on right now. I mean, I'm looking and I'm thinking, is that a Romans 8 group? Is that a Romans 8 youth group? hmm, I don't think that's you. I mean, most Christians live like, boy, this world's a battle. And in the end, we're gonna, we know how it's gonna end. We're gonna kick a field goal and beat the devil 17 to 14. And we're just gonna narrowly win the victory. Isn't that, isn't that something? That's not what the Bible says that we ought to be looking like. The Bible says, hey, hey, you're more, you're supra. You're, you, you exceed all, every, everything this world hurls at you. You are greater than the expectation and you live there and you live within that realm. I think about those pictures in the Bible where Jesus, for instance, sits down. Here comes a woman that's had all kinds of problems in her life, morally. She's had some real issues. They meet together of all places at a well and she brings him some water. And you remember when, when, when he takes that water, he says, let me tell you something about this water. The water that I'm bringing forth to you to talk to you about today is greater than any kind of physical water that you could ever give. In fact, the water I bring is water and you shall never thirst again. Jesus is talking about the picture of what we look like in our transformation in Christ, that that eternal picture of who we are is so superior to anything. That connection eternally supersedes anything that this world ever can hurl at us. But yet, when I look out and look at the ID of most believers that I know, I'm looking at the picture and I'm going, are you kidding me? I mean, most of the time what I see is people that are hurting, correct me if I'm wrong, people that are discouraged, dissatisfied, malcontent. I'm thinking, hmm. I don't think the picture matches. I was thinking the day of my quiet time about John where John makes that incredible statement over there in the, his very first little epistle, his little letter, 1 John, 
uh, in, in chapter five, he makes that incredible statement. He says, everyone that's born of God overcomes the world. Now that's a big statement. If you're born of God, you overcome the world. And then, then John comes in behind there and tucks this little statement. He says, this is the victory, even our faith. And so much of my life, I've just thought, hey, when I'm struggling, I just don't have enough faith. My faith's not big enough. And therefore, that's why I'm not living in this victorious realm. And you know, if you keep reading, you see that he goes on to say there, but he that believes that, the, that Jesus is the son of God. John's not alluding to the fact that our faith needs to be bigger. John's alluding to the fact that when we believe that Jesus is the son of God, then the previous statement is in play in our lives. That simply means that everyone born of God overcomes the world. That doesn't look like us. And so today, I'm gonna take just a few moments and impart I really don't know what the best word to toss out to you would be. We could use the word principle, rule, the key, the secret, if you will. But here's what I do know. Our Bible clearly teaches us how we can live in that realm. There's a bridge scripturally that Paul does such an incredible job building to show us and teach us and he elaborates on it and he even gives us a word picture to make sure that we have it. And today I just want to toss that concept out to you. And what I would suggest to you is one of three things is going on. Either there's a lot of people that do not or they're not aware of how to live like that. There are people maybe that ignore it. You know how to live like that, but you're ignoring it. Or you're just being, what would these Texas word be? Doggone disobedient about it. So grab your Bibles, 2 Corinthians. We're gonna begin reading in verse number 12. And uh, we're, we're gonna read all the way down to verse 17. And then we're gonna come back and we're gonna pick up in verse number 14 because that's really where I want us to anchor our attention for these last 19 minutes and eight seconds. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but saying goodbye to them. I went on then, he says, to Macedonia. You have to understand as we're reading this, evidently there were at least three letters that Paul writes to Corinth. The second one we think has, has been lost. He said, well, wait, no, we have it. No, really, we, we, this is the third letter that we have. We really don't know what happened to the second letter. We have what we call first Corinthians, the first letter. We have that one bound up in our Bible and we have the third letter bound up here is what we call second Corinthians. But you know, we, we know there were multiple letters, but in this letter, Paul spends as much time as anything defending some of the attacks that are going on. Not just about him personally, but some of the ministry that's been set up there in Corinth. And he addresses that. And here he's pulling out one situation to just let them know, hey, I wasn't able to come to you personally, so I just want you to know about this account and what's happening. Begin in verse 14. But thanks be to God, boy, and here's a huge statement, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us reveals the fragrance of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. 
And who is adequate for these things? Look in verse 17. For we are not like the many peddling the word of God, but as, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. I want you to notice something that's significant here, beginning in verse 14. Let's just look at that phrase again. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Notice that verse 14 begins with this, what we call in the Greek language an emphatic word. It's the word but. It's referring back to verses 12 and 13. It points us back to the previous verses. And what Paul is saying is many of you would think that I have encountered a failure. There was this great door of of ministry and opportunity before me and I couldn't get the team assembled. I I couldn't find Titus, I couldn't, for whatever reason, the arrangement of things didn't fall just like we had hoped. And so many of you are gonna perceive that as a failure. He said, we had to move on, we had to go on. That didn't work just like we thought it was going to work. And he gets to verse 14 and he drives home this concept and he says, but despite that, Thanks be to God. And those incredible words that we'll be hanging on this morning who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now those words are significant. And for some of you today, for the very first time, you're gonna discover what I think most scholarship would suggest this phrase really does mean. It is because uh, when you look at the original language here, one word drives those five or six English words. Those words leads us in triumph in Christ. One Greek word, really it's a Greek word that describes a custom. A custom of that day and time that Paul chooses to choose that, he selects that particular word. And it transcends into from a verbal clue into a visual clue for them. They are readily able to sink their teeth into this. This little statement right here, thanks be to God who leads us in triumph for Christ. That Greek word being accustomed was familiar because every time these massive Roman armies won a victory, they would always send back something that we know as a herald. And that herald would be a rider, a dispatch, if you will. And they would go back to the city of Rome and they would let them know there's victory. There's been a great victory. By the way, preaching comes out of the roots of that concept from linguistically speaking of herald. Those that go ahead of the coming of Christ to share an important message of victory. But in special cases, special selected cases, there were those moments when there was such a great victory that a parade would be formed. Not every time, not every time just when Caesar was involved, it didn't didn't necessarily mean which particular general or military leader, it was more about the expense or the cost or the expansion. In these significant victories, there would be in a few days forthcoming a parade. And that parade was always the same. People would prepare for it. The first thing that you would start to see are these, you'd start smelling something in the streets. They would ignite these special fragrances. Some of you love incense in your homes. 
And this particular incense would start to be burned around the streets and in different small communities of people. And they would know anytime that was lit, hey, there's a special occasion coming. We think that we, we smell a parade on the way. A great victory has been won. And then finally, when the troops returned and the commander returned, he didn't just return alone, but he, he, he returned with the captured officers from whoever they had taken. And trailing behind that, all of the army men that were captured, they would be turned into servitude. And then the parade was scheduled and set. Always the muckety-mucks of Rome would be first. The senatorial class. Followed behind that would be the priests. Followed behind that, the musicians. And then of the parade, the star of the whole parade. Always with white horses, always with the gold-plated chariot, whoever the celebrated commander of the victory was, he would come riding in in behind those great white horses in that gold-plated chariot. Music would be playing and people would be throwing petals of different vegetation. There'd be a great fragrance and aroma and, and, and chained behind that chariot were the captured officers of the army that had fallen. It was such an incredible picture. I mean, it was a, a picture of more than anything, a public spectacle and a show of power. We've conquered them. Look at them back there in the dust and the muck and the mire, chained, being drugged along by the great victor in the chariot. And isn't it interesting that of all the visual pictures that Paul could have selected, right here he gives us this particular word out of the Greek language that connects us back to these triumphant parades. And I want you to look in whatever translation you're holding today because it's very significant. Some of you are gonna think, well, pastor, you made such a big deal of that. But you can't make too big, uh, too big a deal of this. The New American Standard translates those particular words in verse number 14, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Listen to the American Standard, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Listen to the NIV again, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal uh, procession. If you're holding a King James, you have the weakest of all the translations when it comes to that phrase. The reason it's the weakest is the way that they have chosen to translate that is really can mislead us from the truth. The King James says, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. You see, it's very clear here in the language that Paul has this intent. He wants to show us a picture that the victory of Christ is always when we follow the victor himself chained to the chariot. Paul wants to make very sure that you and I understand. See, the difference in the language is Paul in the chariot or is Christ in the chariot. 
And with most translations, it makes it very clear to us, hey, it would be Christ in the chariot and others that follow him and serve him, those that have, had, have fallen under submission to him, they are the ones that find themselves chained behind the chariot. What an incredible picture. And it's a picture that you and I need to lodge into our hearts and our minds today because it's very important. In fact, let's jot it down. Here's the secret. The secret to Christian victorious living is if you want to be a conqueror, then you must first be conquered. If you want to be a conqueror, then you must first be conquered. We could state that in a number of ways. If you want to be overcomer, you must first be overcome. If you want to be a master, you must first be mastered. You see, your victory, my victory in Christ will directly always be proportionate to his victory over us and in us. I don't know that in all the years of my ministry, I've ever faced a time, a period in my ministry where I've dealt personally with more people that are going through a tough time in their life they're losing certain victory in certain specific areas of their life. Right now, I know personally that I'm interacting with four alcoholics in the Longview area. And man, that is a tough thing to shake. I mean, man, I mean, that's not some kind of just miracle thing that goes away. And one of the things I communicate to them is, is this, when you and I struggle with a particular area of our life, there's a sin that has a grip on us. So often we can almost always go back and track it and there's a strong possibility that Christ is not the unrivaled Lord in that area of our life. Because Paul tells us this, when we're chained to the chariot behind Christ, he will always lead us to victory. Now, the world may look at certain situations in our life and say, see, they're a failure. But Paul drives that concept home. We're always, always to stay chained behind our Savior. Now, I don't know what your problems are, but let me tell you what my problem with this is. I'm fine at times being chained back there, but the next thing I know, I'm wanting to ride up there with the Lord. I pick up the pace a little bit and jump in the chariot. And there's times in my life that I want to make a, a, just maybe a recommendation to the Lord. Lord, this road that you got us on here is full of potholes. Why don't we do this? Or Lord, this is taking forever. Now the chain's still rattling while I'm standing there, but I, I don't know what the challenge is for you, but for me, I find myself wanting to ride in the chariot. And Paul just keeps reminding us over and over and over again. It's God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. What an incredible thought. See, everybody wants to exercise authority but very few of us ever want to submit to authority. Everybody wants to lead, but very few people want to follow. I want you to turn with me to what I think may be the greatest example of this in the Bible. 
Find the book of Matthew. That should be pretty simple. Hang a left. Go over there to the book of Matthew. Find Matthew and find this number, Matthew 8. Matthew number 8. And scroll down to verse number 5. As soon as you get there, you'll recognize this moment in Jesus' ministry. It's what we call as New Testament believers, hey, that's the centurion. That's when the centurion came to the Lord. And let's just read those few verses again and re-familiarize ourselves with the account. Matthew chapter eight and verse five. Why are we there? Because this is the perfect example of being chained to the chariot. Here it is. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home. He's paralyzed and he's suffering terribly, very ill. There's the synopsis, very ill, Lord. I've got a guy that I love that's, he's back at my home and he's extremely ill. He's got some big, big medical problems. And then Jesus said to him, well, shall I come and heal him? Question. And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just, but, but just say the word and my servant will be healed for I myself and a man under the authority with the soldiers under me and I tell this one go and he goes and I tell that one come and he comes and, and, I, and I say to my servant do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now they tell us that confession is good for the soul. And so I'm going to confess two things to you today. Number one, I guess I, well, really three things. I don't, I evidently look much like the picture on my license. But number two and three, when I look at this, I have to ask myself the question. I mean, look at it. Jesus marveled. Jesus was amazed. My first confession to you is I've asked myself many questions what was so great about what this guy said? And maybe I shouldn't ask, but a third confession, that last statement right there, great faith, what does, what the centurion had this, what, what was his statement? How was it even related to faith? Now, I mean, on the surface, we would say, well, hey, he didn't even ask Jesus to come. He just recognized Jesus had these miraculous powers and that's what he was citing as great faith. And I, I would submit to you, mm -mm, I don't think so. In fact, when you go back and look in verse nine, um, the centurion said this, I'm a man under authority. Now there's our principle chained to the chariot. If we want to live the victorious life, we've got to be willing to what? To submit under his authority. And by the way, this was the, what was the caption here? The centurion. That means he had a hundred men that reported to him. He had to report to Caesar under submission to Caesar in order to have the authority over those 100 men. Now, some of you, I know in the NIV, it uses the word myself. Some of you are holding a translation today that just uses the little English word T-O-O, I T. 
too, Lord. I myself, Lord. Some of you have this translation, I also. I would just submit to you that the reason only two times in our New Testament does Jesus ever, was Jesus ever amazed. Would you put your thinking caps on for a moment? Would you agree with me it would take a lot to get Jesus amazed at anything? I mean, is there anything Jesus hasn't seen? Two times in our New Testament, the Bible says, Jesus was, wow, amazed. He was amazed. It was a mar he marveled. Some of you have that word, he marveled. What was so astronomical about that? That little statement, I believe. It so impressed Jesus that a Gentile of all, and by the way, both of those times in the New Testament where that's mentioned, it was a Gentile faithful act that brought Jesus to the point where he, the Bible says he was amazed. He, was, he marveled at that. And I think the takeaway here with the centurion is not something about faith, but it's about recognition. The centurion, I think, was saying, Lord, I too. Lord, I myself as well. Lord, I also. I understand because you are under the authority of your father. And because of that submission, you have this authority over mankind. And Jesus, I think, looked at this and thought, wow. For him, even though I've said over and over, probably he wasn't at those moments of teaching where what I am just here at the very beck and will of the Father. I'm here to carry out the task of my Father. It's, it's my Abba, it's my dad, it's my father that I'm here to fulfill his promise to God's people. I'm just a sacrificial lamb. And it's because of, of that submission that this centurion says, no need to go to my house. I know because you have submitted yourself, you've changed yourself in submission then because of that, you now have authority. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read that statement, I'm a man under authority, wouldn't you think that the centurion's next words, come on now, would have been something like this? I too am a man of authority, and when Caesar says jump, I jump. When my general counsel says you're going way out there on the othermost part of the world, <laughs> I get on a, a boat and I go. But he didn't say that. He says, I too am a man of authority with soldiers under me. I hope and pray that as you and I are processing the victorious Christian life. I would just submit to you, either no one's ever taught you or you're ignoring or you're just being stubborn and disobedient because Paul says the victory is here. Chained to the chariot. Can I just toss out quickly as we're dismissed, almost on the way out now. 
three characteristics. Just want you to jot them down. We don't have time to elaborate on them much. Three characteristics out of these words who always leads us, 2 Corinthians 2.14, in the triumph of, in Christ. I would just suggest to you that the victorious Christian life, first of all, we've got to understand this first characteristic. This is God's victory through his son. It's God's victory through his son. It's not up to us to win the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why do we think we have to do that? Usually when someone speaks about Christian victory and living a life victoriously, we want to go out. It's like a pep rally. Man, let us at them. Woo! That's not the case at all. Paul says, did you catch that phrase? He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in the triumph in Christ. Do you see that? In Christ, the victory is his son's. You know, we have a special young man that's one of our interns here. In fact, he's about to start his fourth year with us. His name is Garen Powell. And uh, his ministry at ETBU is Christian Ministries with an emphasis in children's ministry. And uh, he had to interview a number of people in ministry. Now, I don't know how I got so lucky to be one of the interviewees, but I was. And, 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 he, and he had this question for me. He says, my professor, Pastor Mike, wants me to go back and a have answers to these questions. I have to write them up and draft them up in a paper. And I said, well, okay, fire away. But I said, better that. Let's get in the truck. I got to go over here. We'll answer them in the truck. Well, how do I write? Well, I don't know turn your phone on and record it or something. So anyway, we're heading down the road and, and, and I don't know, second or third question. He said, um, I mean, he's, he's reading from this sheet. He says, uh, hey, uh, we're, we're supposed to report back to our class. Pastor, what's, uh, what's the most important priority in your ministry? Now think about that for a moment. I think Pastor Kevin would have said, we're called in Matthew to share the gospel. And that would have been a good answer. But that's not the one I gave him. Or, well, you're a pastor. That's why we're doing this interview. You're a pastor. Care for the saints. Care for the people. You, you need to be the, 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 the hospital, funerals, weddings, counsel, love on them. Hey, pastor. But that's not what I answered. It only take me, took, took me a few seconds because those aren't my two priorities, not the top priorities. I shared with Gary and Powell in the truck. Gary, my top priority is to stay chained. Stay chained to what, Pastor Mike? To the chariot. See, the greatest responsibility and priority in my life before anything else can happen is to stay chained to the chariot behind my Lord. And it's not easy back there. I've already confessed to you, I wanna crawl up there with him. It gets dusty back there. It's hot back there. It's discouraging to watch others clap as he goes by and I'm back there. 
But Garen, before I can ever be effective sharing the gospel, you understand the Lord Jesus has already won those victories for us. I've just got to claim that. But I'll never be in tune enough to claim it unless I stay chained to the chariot. You remember a, a little runt that one day his folks called him in and they, I think his name was David. And he said, David, would you take these pimento cheese sandwiches out there to the war where your brothers are? Now I've often wondered about this in the scripture, what kind of war or battle was going on? I mean, in that day and time, what kind of battle was that? But anyway, David says, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll carry the sandwiches out. So he goes out there and you remember the scenario, don't you? Gets out there and man, the two sides are squared off. Not much fighting evidently going on, but they're posturing. And here's all of Israel and his brothers and all of King Saul's men. They're all there hunkered down, cowarding away from on this other side. There's this giant, there's this huge, I mean, a, a monster of a man over there. And David comes out and he says, here, I mean, he, I mean, he has to be watching this with big eyes and hands the sandwiches off to his brothers. And, and probably, well, not probably, the Bible tells us he begins asking, you know, some questions. You know, hey, why didn't somebody do something about that big mouth? And I mean, we can just see it, can't we? Shh, shh, shh. Hey, just hand the sandwiches off and get on back home. And it's kind of like, why didn't somebody go out there and do something about that? Okay, big boy. I'm sure the brother said, here's some of King Saul's armor. Here, let's put this on you. And I can just see, you know, David says, no, 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 no. That's, I can't move around with that stuff on me. But he says, I have my sling and I have my stones. The Bible tells us he goes out and he looks square at Goliath's kneecaps. And do you remember the statement that came out of David's mouth? David said, the battle is the Lord's. I would just suggest to you, let this thing roll. Somebody asked me today, well, pastor, do you feel pressure about the church growing? I don't feel any pressure about the church growing. I feel pressure about staying chained to that chariot. The Bible tells us that some men plant and some water, but it's the Lord that brings the increase. It's not my responsibility to grow this church. My responsibility is to stay chained to the chariot. That's what my responsibility is. I'll lead the best I can, but you can't be fit if you're not chained to the chariot. Did you get number one? First characteristic, you'll never live the victorious Christian life without understanding that the real victory is through his son. By the way, if you're carrying some of that burden around on you, man, you need to be freed up of that. If you're here today and you feel some kind of unnecessary burden on your shoulders, of responsibility that you've tried to take. You've wandered away from the back behind the chariot and you've crawled up there in the chariot itself and now you've got all of this burden on you. Let that stuff roll off. The Bible says the victory is the Lord's. He's already won that. 
Second thing, quickly, our victory is through submission. If the victory is there, it'll be through submission. When you and I are chained, you always are in a fellowship mold. You're always yielding unconditionally to his lordship. Number three, and I want you to see this from the text. Again, this victorious living always remains ours in any situation. Can I just show these two words before we walk out? Here it is, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through, and, and through us reveals the fragrance and knowledge of, of, him, of him in every place. Listen to this, this is amazing. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one and aroma to death and to the other to life. And he says, who is adequate for these things? You know, there's a couple of words that are very, very important to us. Two very important words or phrases. Did you notice that this is, but thanks be to God who always. Do you understand that what God gives us in any situation, it's always there. It never goes away. God's victory for us is always there. Did you see that word? Always. And then look at the end of verse 14. Look at those two words. The knowledge of him in every place. There can't be a situation or a place that you and I go that God's victory has not already gone before us. I mentioned a few moments ago to you some scenarios I mentioned to you Romans 8, more than conquerors. We just talked briefly and mentioned the importance of the essence of 1 John as well, chapter 5, where John says, hey, if you're in Christ, you, you, you've overcome the world. And we talked about faith. But in 1 John 5, 4, faith, John says, is the victory. It's not faith obtains the victory. It's not faith that brings the victory, but it's faith is the victory. Our church family is experiencing right now from in a number of pockets we're walking through some tragedy. In fact, if we go back over the last 18, 19, 20 months, our church has been in kind of a dealing with tragedy mode from the time that a wind blew the steeple off this building through a pandemic. Now it seems like God is walking us through a time when there's, I mean, the COVID deaths, the tragedy, of what some in our church family are going through right now with health crisis situations. Difficult days. Unexplainable days. Days when most would ask, well, why is this happening? Or this is an extraordinary set of circumstances. Or, and again, anytime things happen, People's first response, the nature of humanity is, well, it's punishment. 
always amazes me. Doesn't matter what happens. Steeple blows off, church being punished. Pandemic, America being punished. A tragic health situation comes on us. Well, somebody's being punished. You know, our Bible teaches us that there are those times that God did punish in use circumstances. The Bible also tells us that a, a group of men came to our Lord and Savior and said, Lord, now, who, who sinned because of this calamity? Mom, dad, who exactly is at fault here? And you remember the Lord Jesus clearly taught us that there are a number of circumstances that you and I walk through that there's no punishment involved. It may be a time of testing. It may be a time of a trial in someone's life. God may be accomplishing his will in some unusual way at the expense of someone that's walking through grief or pain. But through it all, through it all, I want you to understand that faith is the victory. Whether it's at a cemetery where I'm able just to ask the question, are you still going to remain faithful? You bet, Pastor Mike. Whether it's in a hospital situation where the worst of the worst news has been delivered, it couldn't be any worse. Are you still going to remain faithful? In days when the church disappoints you, are you still going to remain faithful? I just wonder. How do you think we look when it stacks up to the axe model of our church? What do you think we're representing out there in the kingdom to the world around us? Is it you don't look anything like that? Or is it you're the splitting image of the model of what the book of Acts teaches us a church is to be? The aroma of a parade that's underway and in the chariot behind the white horses, the Savior being exalted. And listen, the rattling of chains the greatest of sounds to the servants who have fallen under the submission of the king because it's there that we ride in the wake of the Savior's accomplishments. Not just for us in eternal life, but for us in the victory that he's already won. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for these moments. We thank you that Paul was able to paint such a vivid, incredible, dynamic picture of what we are to be as your followers. Father, it's in servitude and submission that we place ourselves under your authority today. We know that everything that we have comes from you. We know that everything that you are transforming us to become, that process is from you. We know the rough edges that you're chipping away at in each of our lives. We know that whole process is being 
authored from your perspective and your will and your direction, the finisher, the craftsman of our lives. And as Father, in those moments when we experience what we perceive as defeat, that might be some of the moments that you would suggest would be the greatest victory. We're thankful for Paul's opening words into this pericope or section of scripture that just reminds us what some might perceive as a failure might, after all, be once again evidence of your will and your victory. So Father, this morning, as we have exalted you as our way maker, as we have lifted your name as our rock, You are the solid rock on which we stand. Father, today, would we be able to just out of complete submission fall before you, our Lord, our King, our Savior, and fall before you and just acknowledge, Lord, I need you as the Savior of my life. I turn away from those moments when I try to run ahead of the chariot or crawl up in the seat beside you. Those moments when I and me and myself become the center point and you're pushed aside that those moments were in the greatest danger. But Father, chained behind that chariot, there's no more, there's no greater place of safety. So Father, today for someone that's here that has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, to turn away from sin and self and to acknowledge you as their King. And Father, the Bible tells us when we call upon your name, and the sin and the darkness in our life, if we're willing to turn to you and away from that and let you be the guide of our lives, repenting of that sin and that darkness and trusting you for life ahead, that there's the opportunity that we shall be saved. And Father, that step of faith, believing in you as our Savior is so very important. Father, maybe there are others that are here in this room that are just carrying a huge weight on their shoulders. They felt for a long time that it's something that they need to do or accomplish. And they're carrying that burden, what they can do, their strength, their power to move forward. And Father, there's so much of the victory that's there for claiming, the taking, because you've already made a way. So Father, it is in that manner that we come today before you as your servants. Father, would you humble our hearts? Would you just melt away any sense of arrogance? And Father, would you bring about in us just a humble willingness, a simplicity, a transparency to come back to you as small children in obedience.
Father, keep us chained. Keep us in the very place that you would have us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Our worship team's here. They're going to lead us. I'm going to ask you to do this as you make your way out after we sing this morning. Would you be praying for old Stuart Lithicum? Be praying for their family. Challenging days. But are we going to be faithful? Are we going to trust the Lord even in those most demanding, difficult, hard, painful days? Let's sing as we worship.